when you tour the monuments and memorials, it kind of feels like they've just kind of always been there. Yeah. Yeah, I think people assume that the National Mall has always looked the way that it does, but it actually has had a huge transformation in the past 150 plus years. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Trip Hacks DC podcast. This project has been a long time in the making, and I'm really excited to get it started. For those of you who have been longtime subscribers to the Trip Hacks DC channel on YouTube, this podcast is not going to replace it, but it is going to give me a chance to produce some longer form content that's not really suitable for YouTube. And it will give me a chance to have more guests and experts to share their personal Trip Hacks as well. And speaking of special guests, I am excited to welcome Carolyn Moraskin to today's episode. Thank you. Carolyn is a tour guide and the owner of DC Design Tours, a company that specializes in architecturally themed walking tours. Carolyn left her drafting desk and started DC Design Tours so she could start talking about buildings rather than designing them. So, welcome to the first podcast, Carolyn. Thanks, Rob. For this episode, we thought it would be an interesting topic to take a really deep dive into something that a lot of visitors to Washington, DC actually know a thing or two about, and that is the Monuments Memorials on the National Mall. So one thing that I find really interesting is that when people come on my tour, and I don't know if you feel this way as well, is that when you tour the Monuments and Memorials, it kind of feels like they've just kind of always been there. Yeah. Yeah, I think people assume that the National Mall has always looked the way that it does, but it actually has had a huge transformation in the past 150 plus years. Yeah. So a lot of the monuments, I think, are kind of recent as of, what, the last three decades or so? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our first war memorial was the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which was 1982. Yeah. So as far as the entire history of the United States goes, or Washington, D.C., that's pretty new, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it was a whole new concept to build war memorials on the National Mall. Before that, people had sort of their local war memorials, especially from World War II. But in light of how badly the veterans were treated in Vietnam, uh, that was the first time there was a real push to build a national war memorial. Now, there is the little World War I memorial on the Mall, which people often totally ignore, but it was built only for veterans of Washington, D.C. So that was still kind of in the local realm. Um, it wasn't a national monument. And they're actually building now a national World War I monument. Yeah, that's really that's a really interesting story. And I think we might get into that a little bit yeah. as we go through the discussion. But let's let's go all the way back to the beginning. So before a memorial gets built on the National Mall, it goes through a pretty extensive process. That's right. So let's say that I know a person uh, who I think was really spectacular, or there's an event that I think the people from this event really ought to be honored. And I think they deserve a memorial. So how exactly does that process even get started? Yeah, it is a long road. Uh, some memorials can take as many as like 40 years to get started. Um, it starts with initiation. So it starts with a grassroots effort. To build a memorial, you need an organization that's first going to push for it. Uh, for example, the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial, which just opened in 2011, his fraternity actually were the ones who like really started the effort. So you need an organization to together, they have to petition Congress. Uh, they have to find a member of Congress to advocate for them. And then the member of Congress proposes it to Congress. And they actually have to pass a law to say, we're going to build this memorial somewhere in Washington, D.C. So when you say pass a law, we're talking pretty standard schoolhouse rock. Yeah, bill becomes uh, process law. Process here. You know, I'm just a bill sitting on Capitol Hill. Exactly. And how hard is it for the sponsor to actually find a Congress member. I mean, if we're talking about Martin Luther King, I imagine there are many people in Congress who would be perfectly happy to be the one to spearhead a Martin Luther King memorial. So is it pretty easy? How does that process work? 
Uh, I think it depends on what you're trying to memorialize. Congress apparently gets hundreds of proposals every single year. So I'm sure some of them never get, you know, off the desk of the congressman or the staffer. Um, but in the works, there's a bunch already in the works. There's a Desert Storm Memorial. There's, as I mentioned, a World War I Memorial. There's an Eisenhower Memorial. But I imagine only a tiny fraction of those that are proposed actually make it. And even before that, there's a lot of qualifications like, does this have national importance? Would this have great visitorship? So there's, there's a lot of factors even before you know, a congressman would even look at it. Okay, so when you say uh, there's some that are under, uh, they're in process right now, like the Eisenhower Memorial, that means that the bill has already been fully passed by Congress mm-hmm. and presumably signed by the president, or at least not yeah, signed so it that it became law. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And so can you talk a little bit about um, how some of those came to be, you know, if, if you know about who sponsored them or how that process worked? Sure. Well, let's use one that's already already exists, just as an example. Yeah, that's probably a better idea. And then we can talk about ones that are in the works. Sure. So uh, a good example is, as I mentioned before, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. So that, again, was like the first national war memorial. Um, the guy that really spurred the effort, his name was Jan Scruggs, and he was a Vietnam veteran himself. He had come home from the war and he had seen how terribly these vets were treated that they were told you know don't talk about the war don't admit you fought don't wear your uniform obviously that bothered him and he also saw a lot of his colleagues or his compatriots suffering from PTSD so he became kind of an advocate for the rights of veterans and he is the one who started gardening support to build a Vietnam veterans memorial now that process was particularly tumultuous um, because most memorials, after they have that initiation, after the legislation is passed, after the site is selected, then they hold a design contest, which actually I think is one of the most amazing things about Washington, D.C., is that almost all of our famous buildings, our monuments, or memorials were done by independent international competition, anonymous competition. So they held the competition, and the design that won ended up being done by this 21-year-old girl, an undergrad student at Yale, architecture student named Maya Lin. And she apparently had only done it as a class project and then like on a whim submitted it, and she got a B on her project. But um, she won this international contest. NPS, her professor, also submitted an entry, and it didn't make it past the first round. So, so that, that's quite an accomplishment for this young woman. Yeah. And I imagine as a student of architecture yourself, you could imagine that to be able to say that you won an entire competition besting professional architects from all around the world is quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, this woman, like, she had no idea that, you know, this could ever happen. But once she won and once her design became public, a lot of vets actually didn't like it. And there was a lot of controversy. She caught all kinds of flack. She had hate mail and death threats. And it was an extremely tumultuous time, obviously, in American history. But um, it was interesting to learn about this process. But actually, to their credit, uh, the approval board stuck more or less to her design. One of the main criticisms was that the wall memorializes those that were killed or missing, but it doesn't address those that fought and survived. And so they ended up adding this other statue called the Three Servicemen Statue to kind of placate um, the people who were upset about that. And initially, they were going to place it right at the top of the Vietnam Wall. So you've been, obviously, to the wall, right, mm-hmm. right where the two sides come together. And Myelin, it, it, she was furious at the idea. She said it would compromise her design. And they actually respected what she wanted, and they placed it kind of to the side. So the statues are like looking over at the wall. So they did allow this woman, this 21-year-old woman, to really have a say in the execution of her own her own design. So she won the competition, fair and square. Yep. Her design, was judged, her design was judged anonymously with no name on it or anything like right. that. Has she spoken out and said, you know, if it hadn't been an anonymous competition? Does she feel like she would have had a chance with her age or anything like that have impacted the process? Yeah, she's addressed that before. I mean, it, 
It's definitely a question. Another reason that she caught flack was unfortunately because she was Asian American. She's Chinese American. Um, and so I'm sure she has questioned, and she said in interviews, um, questioned the idea if she would have won or not, being a young Asian American woman, like three strikes, you know, as far as not not qualifying. So what's in it for this designer? I mean, they have a design competition, and 1,400 people for the Vietnam right. Memorial Competition entered the competition. Obviously, if you win, you have very significant bragging rights. I mean, you can say that you are a very accomplished She peaked designer. early. <laughs> and so what else is in it for them? Is there a salary? Is there a prize? Or is it all for recognition and the fact that you're serving your country in a way by designing a memorial that's going to get built on the National Mall? It depends on the on the design. Certainly the glory and the prestige is probably the biggest, especially for architects because we all eat that stuff up. Um, but there was also a $20,000 prize, at least associated with the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. It's different, though, in every competition because the, the sponsor, as they call it, the people who are funding the, um, the competition, they decide what the winner you know, will get. Sometimes there's no money at all, and it's all about the glory. Okay, that's interesting. So let's talk about what... Uh, it means for the placement of the monuments. Mm -hmm. One thing that I know a lot of people who come on my tours ask me all the time, and I'm sure you get this as well, is aren't we running out of space? Where else can we put monuments? You know, you mentioned five memorials that are under consideration right now that have passed the legislative process, and what space is left? I mean, where do we still have that we can put a new memorial on the National Mall that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question, and I get that a lot too. So um, a big sort of um, changing moment in the approval of memorials was in 1986, where they passed the Commemorative Works Act. And this really formalized the process of um, of building monuments and memorials in and around the National Mall. So after that act was passed, they actually decided that the mall eventually would be closed to further monuments. So at the moment, that is the the line. It, they call it the reserve. So the reserve area is basically from the Capitol building, all the grass down past the Smithsonian Museum's World War II Memorial area, down obviously to the Lincoln Memorial. So that area, as far as now, in the, the act says that area is closed. No more memorials are going to be built there. So instead, they've kind of started branching out. So the Martin Luther King, for example, in 2011, that's built on the Tidal Basin, which is technically off the mall, right, just to the south. The, uh, the new Desert Storm Memorial, they think, is going to be built at 23rd and Constitution, which is like just north of the Lincoln Memorial. So they're just outside the boundary. Yeah, so for those who have been to the National Mall before or might be visiting soon, the Lincoln Memorial is on the far west end of the National Mall. And then just to the north is a big grassy area that really doesn't have anything on it right now. I think there might be a gift store yeah. uh, or a refreshment stand or something like that. But it's a big empty area that you could definitely imagine uh, being a prime spot for a memorial. Mm-hmm. The other thing they're definitely building there is a museum uh, for artifacts that have been left at the Vietnam Wall. So there's going to be stuff built there. So that's where uh, Desert Storm Memorial is going to hopefully go. They're still in the last like approval phases of um, site selection. Um, then the Eisenhower Memorial is being built just south of the Air and Space Museum, so also off the mall in a sort of triangular park. And then the World War I Memorial is probably being built in Pershing Park, which is also off the mall, kind of near the White House, across the street from the Willard Hotel, if anyone knows where that is. Yeah, and that's an interesting one because World War I, as far as you know, America's wars go, was a lot longer ago than the wars that we actually do have memorials for. And as of right now, in 2018, there are no living World War I vets. 
So there really isn't um, a group of folks who are asking Congress to do this right now. Uh, and there's been a, do- a lot of delays with that project as well. Yeah, that one has been so tumultuous. It's been in the works for years and years. And um, the person who won that, also in anonymous contest, was actually a 25-year-old guy, an intern. And um, his design has had to change so much to accommodate the critique of the review board. The review board, by the way, is made up of seven entities. So there are a lot of approvals to go through. There's the Park Service, of course, the Historic Preservation Board, the National Capital Memorial Advisory Committee, um, the Capital or the Commission of Fine Arts. There's a lot of people to make happy. And this one is particularly tumultuous because the architect of Pershing Park Uh, is also kind of agitating against making a lot of changes to the park that he designed, I think, back in the 80s. I'm not sure the date. But they're trying to incorporate kind of the old design and the new design together. And when you get architects together, nothing good happens. So so one thing that I find interesting about this process and that people who come on my tours find really interesting is that I don't think there's been a single monument or memorial on the National Mall that was built without some sort of controversy, without some sort of uh, pushback, someone who didn't like the location, didn't like who it was for, didn't like the design of it. And so do you have an example of another one, you know, other than Vietnam or other than World War One, that had uh, some controversy around it, maybe one that we think of as being completely uncontroversial like Lincoln or Jefferson? Yeah, sure. So even the Washington Monument, there's whole books written about the Washington Monument and how long it took. There was a 22-year gap of time where the Washington Monument just stood as this ugly stump. Um, And uh, Mark Twain said it looked like a large stalk of asparagus, which I always quote that on my tours. But um, that one took forever, mostly because of funding. They had actually limited donations to the construction of the monument to $1 because they wanted everyone, you know, to be able to participate, which is a nice idea, but they kind of shot themselves in the foot. Then the Civil War happened. A lot, a lot, a lot of controversy there. But the most sort of poignant story, I think, is when states were donating stones. So if you ever, the Washington Monument's been closed now since, well, more or less since 2011. Yeah, you can go up in an elevator and go to a beautiful observation deck when it's open. That's a big asterisk because it was closed for earthquake damage and now it's closed again for an elevator replacement and repair. But yeah, they say it's going to reopen in 2020, which means 2030. So you never know. But when you have a chance to go, you go up in the elevator and you see all these stones along the inside and they were all donated by different states. But there was actually one piece of stone that never made it because it was donated by the Pope. And at the time, there was this political party in power that was really anti-Catholic. And so they didn't want this beautiful piece of Vatican marble installed. And um, they didn't handle it diplomatically. They waited months and months as this beautiful slab of stone is traveling all across the world. And it's finally sitting on the construction site. And in the middle of the night, these four men sneak onto the site, kidnap the guard, smash the stone, and dump it into the Potomac River. So it never makes it. So even though we think of the Washington Monument as being this obvious, you know, pillar to our founding father and giant obelisk on the mall, it also had its long, long history of controversy. And that long history of controversy is the reason why when you come and you look at it and you say, how did they screw this up making it two different colors of stone? (laughs) Yeah. It's because they started the project and then because of that long, long delay, by the time they went back to finish the project, they didn't have stone from the quarry that match the color anymore. So right. we wound up with a kind of an odd looking monument there. Yeah, I had to cut on my tour the other day, tell me we should just paint it, <laughs> which was charming. It's an interesting idea. Certainly other buildings in town um, are painted, most notably the Capitol Dome. Is the White painted. House, the it's White very House. white. 
Very much so. And the Washington Monument is also really interesting because it doesn't look like any of the other presidential monuments and memorials. So I sometimes like to say on my tours that if aliens came down to Earth and abducted us, they would probably visit and they'd realize, okay, this guy Abe Lincoln, we can figure out what he did. And Thomas Jefferson, there's a statue of him over there. But what's this big Egyptian obelisk in the middle of the National Mall? So do you know what's going on with that? Yeah, it is definitely very different. Um, Originally, the Washington Monument was supposed to be designed by Pierre L'Enfant, who was the original designer of Washington, D.C. And he comes to a really unceremonious end because he ends up getting fired for um, insubordination, essentially. He didn't want to wait for the government to buy up property when they were building the city. So he just bulldozed everybody's houses and he knocked down barns and shot cows and he ends up getting fired. So he never gets a chance to design the Capitol, the White House, the Washington Monument. He wanted the Washington Monument to be a giant gold equestrian statue of George Washington. So uh, the project languished for a long time. And then in 1846, it was picked up. And the man that won the design, was an, uh, his name was Robert Mills. And he designs this big obelisk. And the reason he picks an obelisk is because of the Freemasons. The Freemasons are, you know, this old fraternal order that a lot of our founding fathers are members of. And Freemasons use a lot of Egyptian symbolism in their traditions. And you'll see it, you know, on the back of like a U.S. dollar bill. You see the pyramid, the all-seeing eye. So um, that's why they chose an obelisk, because it was an Egyptian symbol of light, you know, of like going up to the heavens. Um, but it's much more abstract than a lot of our other monuments. It doesn't so, say Washington Monument anywhere on it. Yeah. So why, why not also include the statue of George Washington if they were going to? Well, Money was a big deal. The original Mills design actually was more elaborate. He also designed for a colonnade to be built around the bottom. And in between each one, he wanted a statue of George Washington. I imagine him in like different poses, you know, like flexing or like looking out into the distance. And they didn't have enough money. So none of that part was ever built. So it's actually much more austere than Mills really intended in the original design. So Mills's design, to me, makes a lot of sense. You know, if we're going to build a monument to someone like George Washington, it's going to have, you know, those different statues and yeah. symbolisms to remember the man. And so it is interesting that we wound up with what we got. Big but, pencil. But now it's so iconic that, you know, dare anyone say, let's finish the project, let's build what he originally designed, there would be such an outcry that it would never happen. Yeah. At least I certainly couldn't imagine it. I don't think it would ever happen. Just adding those 50 flags, that was like a thing in and of itself. There's 50 flags around the Washington Monument. So I think it'll stay as it is. Yeah, definitely. So these monuments are all obviously very expensive. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of alluded to who pays for them earlier. Um, What happens after the monument gets built, after the construction's finished and the contractors have left, then it goes over to the National Park Service because the National Mall is actually a national park? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends on where it's built. So if it's built on the mall or in an area that the Park Service has jurisdiction, then they take it over. Um, Otherwise, the GSA, the General Services Administration, takes it over. But in the budgeting, uh, because these memorials, again, are paid for entirely by private funds, um, in the budgeting, they have to allocate 10%, 10%, I think it is, of construction costs um, set aside for the first, you know, however many years of maintenance. And then it's fully the responsibility of the Park Service or GSA. Yeah. And unfortunately, in 2018, the National Park Service is, I think, woefully underfunded might be a generous way of yeah. describing the situation. The and elevator at the Lincoln Memorial has been broken for like six months. Yeah, that's that's frustrating. And I, I have been telling people who come on my tours that 
one day in 2018, we're going to go to the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial and all of the fountains are going to be never. working. Never. It'll never and happen. It hasn't, it hasn't yet happened. So one thing that I actually read recently that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to ask you about were about the fountains at the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial. So for people who haven't been there before or haven't been there in a while, this is a very, very large monument to a former president who pretty specifically said that he didn't want this monument yeah. at all. And so in the 1990s, Congress commissioned a monument to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and there's a lot of water features inside. And I actually read that the designer may have intended people to play around in some of the waterfalls uh, that were included in there, but the National Park Service, certainly concerned with liability and maintenance and other things, was not so interested in having that happen. Yeah, the uh, landscape architect, his name was Lawrence Halperin. He won the contest. He's an awesome architect. He does most of his work on the West Coast. But he envisioned there's, if you go there, you'll see in the fountains, there's kind of these like stepping stones. And it's so tempting to walk out amongst the waterfalls. And of course, the kids do all the time and they parkour off the sides. Um, But the park rangers will yell at them. So yeah, there's definitely a, a stress there between the original designer's intention and the park service needing to maintain and not have people drown and you know. Yeah, and there was um, another another article I was reading recently was making reference to the fact that there are actually some fountains in Washington, D.C. that have been broken for so long that people don't even realize they're fountains because they've lived here for decades and they've only ever seen them as statues, perhaps. Yeah, and like so, Columbus Circle. Yeah, yeah, so Columbus Circle, for those who don't know, is the street that's right in front of Union Station. So if you've ever traveled by train or by bus, you've probably come through Union Station. It's about a mile north of the Capitol building. Yeah. And there's a statue of Christopher Columbus right over there. And it's not the Christopher Columbus statue. It's the Christopher Columbus fountain. Right. Yeah, well, he's been sort of vilified in history, justifiably so, I think, in the last, like, 30 years. But that fountain hasn't worked, I think, since the 90s. I mean, it's never worked since I've been here. Yeah, I think that's about right. So we've talked about some of the bigger, more well-known monuments and memorials and some of the things that are coming soon. There's a lot of lesser-known or more obscure monuments and memorials on the National Mall, and I know I have my personal favorites, and I always talk about those uh, when I have a chance on some of my tours, and I know you have some of your favorites as well, so what what are your favorites, I mean, for people who are interested in going a little bit off the beaten path and maybe seeing something a little bit different than the main ones that they would see on my tour or your tour? Yeah, well, actually, we do a tour down Pennsylvania Avenue, and my favorite thing to show people is the Temperance Fountain, which I know, Rob, you've heard me talk about this many times. It's this super strange little structure um, with a crane on the top. It's right on Pennsylvania Avenue, kind of across the street from the National Archives building. And it was built by this guy, Henry Cogswell, who was ardently against alcohol. He was actually a dentist, and he had gone to California during the gold rush to like treat people's teeth. He had made a bunch of money investing in gold and mining And he decided it was his mission to provide cold water to the masses. So he went around building these fountains in various cities, and he put them in the worst neighborhoods. And that area down Pennsylvania Avenue, as you probably know, used to be called Murder Bay. It was like the slummiest part of the city where all the prostitutes and the alcoholics, all the saloons were down there. I think people might find that really shocking, especially when you visit today, or if you've just watched an inauguration on TV Mm -hmm. and see... Uh, the president walking down Pennsylvania Avenue, it looks like a very nice part of town. But yeah. not even that long ago, it was definitely not. Yep. Well, if you take our White House and Pennsylvania Avenue tour, then you will learn all about it. But um, yeah, so it was a seedy neighborhood. And so Cogswell designed himself, and you can tell, uh, this weird water fountain. It's got these two big, ugly fish coming out of the middle. That's where the water would come out. There was a common cup. So 
they didn't realize, you know, germs. So there was like a cup hanging from a string. You could dip your water. And then there was a trough at the bottom for the horses. And he even created like an ice reservoir to keep the water cold. And he had it, he paid for it himself. He had it installed right there on the corner in front of this bad neighborhood. And um, it was, didn't run very long. It was, no, they never put ice in it because they didn't want to expend those resources. And then eventually it was turned off and it's just been sitting there ever since. It is so odd. And you can tell it was not designed by someone with a design mind. In fact, the one of the contributions that that donation made was afterwards the city passed more uh, laws about approving memorials. Basically, they said the Fine Arts Commission must approve any structure, donated structure, because people were so upset about how ugly this Cogswell fountain was. So most of the fountains are gone. There, there were over 20 of them. There's only a couple left. So I'm excited. I'm glad that, you know, Washington, D.C. has preserved this really weird little quirk of history. Yeah, they preserved that one. And now you've got a good talking point for... Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's pretty close to the Capitol. Mm-hmm. And the Capitol grounds were actually designed by a landscape architect yep. uh, who also is credited perhaps rightfully, perhaps wrongfully, for also doing Central Park mm-hmm. in New York City. Yep. So some people, when they are doing their trip across the U.S., they go from New York and then they come to Washington, D.C., and they look at the Capitol grounds, and I, I can just see it in their eyes, a lot of people thinking, wow, this stuff looks awfully familiar, but I just can't put my finger on it. So do you know the story behind how that came to be? The Capitol grounds? The Capitol grounds with um, With Frederick Law Olmsted. Yeah, so Olmsted uh, was very, very prolific landscape architect at the turn of the century. And um, he's more famous for Central Park. He also completely redesigned the city of Chicago, along with Daniel Burnham. If you've ever read the book, have you read the book Devil in the White City? Yes, I have. Yeah, that's a great book. If anyone's not read it, it's about the Chicago World's Fair, and there's a murder. It's very, very juicy. Um, But the reason that Burnham and Olmsted were brought in to redesign the Capitol grounds was because D.C. was really in a horrible state after the Civil War. So after the war, even though there were no battles in Washington, D.C., the city was still very much ravaged because we had this huge influx of soldiers bringing with them, you know, malaria and typhoid and smallpox. And Congress just had never in really invested in the Capitol beyond their little ivory tower, you know, at the top of the hill. And so briefly in the 1870s, Congress actually entertained the idea of abandoning Washington, D.C. altogether. So just giving up on the Capitol and moving it to St. Louis, Missouri, which always makes people raise an eyebrow. But geographically, no offense, St. Louis, but it made some amount of sense because our country was expanding west. So St. Louis is in the middle. It's on the Mississippi River. And it really was more well-established than the Capitol at the time. It had you know commerce and infrastructure and people and plumbing. And we're still here like wallowing in the mud in Washington at the turn of the century. But instead of moving the capital, this sort of serves as a push to get Congress to finally decide to invest further in the city. And so they bring together these two really famous designers of the era, Frederick Law Olmsted and Daniel Burnham, and they develop something called the Macmillan Plan which was published in 1901, and it was this huge overhaul for Washington, D.C. So this is when they renovated the Capitol and the White House, and they filled in these old canals that had become like disgusting open sewers. They established Rock Creek Park and the zoo. It was like a facelift, total facelift for the city. And so that's when Olmsted got the opportunity to design, sorry, long story short, to design uh, the grounds of the Capitol, along with Burnham, who designed Union Station most famously, and a lot of the other planning of the city. So the Macmillan plan for the National Mall is really what, uh, you know, gave us the opportunity to have all the monuments and memorials that mm-hmm. we've been talking about. Yeah, they still use it in the planning. Yeah. And so let's let's talk about the Lincoln Memorial because sure. you can't talk about the monuments and memorials without talking about the Lincoln Memorial. And 
when you take a tour or just when you're wandering around and looking at the monuments, you go to the Lincoln Memorial and it's like a magical experience. Yeah. You stand on those stairs, you look across the mall, see the Washington Monument reflected in the reflecting pool and the Capitol Dome way off in the distance. And I call that the postcard view of the city because you go to any gift store and that's the photo that's on half the postcards. Yeah. But it almost didn't happen, which I think a lot of people find shocking, especially when they hear that it was uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, Joe Cannon, a Republican from Illinois, no less, who almost torpedoed the Lincoln Memorial plan. Right. You could tell that. Do you want to tell that story a little more? Yeah, sure. So Joe Cannon, he absolutely loved Lincoln. I mean, he was an admirer of him. He met Lincoln uh, when he was a boy, and he thought that it would be uh, quite a shame if we built a monument to his hero and no one visited it. And nowadays, you go down to that part of the city, and you've got the Lincoln Memorial, and you've got the Vietnam Memorial, and the Korean Memorial, mm-hmm. all right there. And it's you know, there's a thousand people over in that at any given time. Yeah. Me with my tour groups and you with yours. And so it's kind of easy. Sometimes to, at the same time. It's, it's kind of easy to take for granted that that hasn't always been like that. That's um, right. And he said, that, didn't he say, I'll be dead before they put Lincoln in that damn swamp? Yeah, was that the quote? Right. So yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting because, yeah, that was at one time an overgrown field where nobody went. Right. And so it, it makes sense that, uh, you know, you'd be afraid that if you built something, you got to have to believe that if you build it, they will come. And certainly with the Lincoln Memorial, that was 100% the case. Yeah, that design contest was also crazy. If you ever look up um, other designs, someone wanted a giant pyramid and a big ziggurat. And then they briefly considered building the Lincoln Memorial at the top of Meridian Hill Park, which um, we do a different tour of our Columbia Heights and Adams Morgan tour. That's a very high spot in the city, as you know. And the, there was a woman named Mary Foote Henderson who was trying to build up that neighborhood and um, get you know rich people and diplomats and embassies to come there. And she pushed really hard to build the Lincoln Memorial at the top of that hill because it would have had this commanding view across the city, which uh, it's a beautiful spot, but it seems like an odd place for the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah. So it's I think we got really lucky that it wound up being in the spot where it was. And despite many years of controversy and fighting, and that's another one of those ones where you look at the Lincoln Memorial and you think, how could anyone possibly think that this was controversial, Mm -hmm. especially now in 2018. But it was definitely at that time one that there was a lot of back and forth about. Yeah. Yeah. There's a picture I show in my tour of the land in between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, and it really looks dismal. So I can totally understand his aggravation with putting the Lincoln Memorial way out there. But it allowed the city to expand because that whole area is infill, right? They filled in the marsh out to Lincoln. And now it's this amazing, you know, that's where you run through the pool and scream Jenny. Where else will the tourists do that if not there? (laughs) Absolutely. And I I do encourage people who come on my tour to Google Lincoln Memorial Pyramid because it's not just the location that was up for grabs. It was also the design. And I'll leave a link to a photo of that and an article about it in the show notes. But we almost got an Egyptian pyramid. So we almost wound up with an Egyptian obelisk for George Washington and an Egyptian pyramid for Abe Lincoln. And I personally, I'm not an architect like you are, but I think that we lucked out with the beautiful Greek design that we got. I agree. So, Carolyn, I want to thank you for coming on the inaugural podcast and sharing all of these wonderful stories. My pleasure. One of the reasons why uh, people often take tours with someone like you is because of the stories that you have to tell. And that's one thing that, you know, I tell people when they ask me, why should I take a tour? The monuments are free. I can just wander around on my own is because we could sit here for, you know, hours and hours and just talk about the stories from each and every one of these monuments. And you're not going to get that if you're wandering around on your own. You certainly could look up the facts and go on the National Park Service website. But to hear it from a tour guide, someone as experienced and architecturally savvy as yourself is definitely... Thank you. Quite the... uh, quite the experience. So thanks again for coming on. 
You're welcome. It's been really fun. I'm happy to be part of this inaugural uh, video podcast. And I will have links in the show notes to all of Carolyn's um, material, DC design tours, the tours that she offers, and all kinds of other good stuff. So thanks again. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.